This is legislation that has been passed here in California that says that parents who do not affirm their children according to the gender that they identify by, that they're committing child abuse. And that will be, it will become the pretext in which children can be removed from the home. In response to this, last Tuesday, California Senator Scott Wilk of of Santa Clarita issued a warning to parents at the California Senate Judicial Committee, and he said this, I'm now in year 11 in the state legislature, and all the time we're proposing policies to protect children. After 11 years, I've come to the conclusion that we need to start protecting parents. That's just not happening. I've been here and have witnessed a full frontal assault on charter schools, taking away parents' choice in how their children are to be educated, to the detriment particularly of children of color. In recent years, we have put government bureaucrats between parents, children, and doctors when it comes to medical care. And now we have this. If a parent does not support the ideology of the government, we're going to they're going to be taken away from the home. He then talks about, in this presentation, he then talks about how it is that AB 957 now uh, now applies to children of divorced parents, but then reminds his audience that this is how things end up becoming more invasive. In other words, they're starting with divorced situations, but it won't end there. And then he goes on and says this, In the past, when we've had these discussions and I've seen parental rights atrophy, I've encouraged people to keep fighting. I've changed my mind on that. If you love your children, he said, you need to flee California. Now, he said more than that, but I wanted to begin with that in order to say the following. First of all, I'm not about to begrudge a man uh, his freedom of choice to live wherever he wants to live. This is a free country. If you want to live in another state, that is your freedom to move there. And fleeing cities, by the way, is a biblical concept, especially if an angel of the Lord tells you to flee a city, right? There's biblical precedent for this. And trust me, I I wrestled over this question of, do I really move my family to the state of California? And I didn't have any angel of the Lord telling me not to, so that didn't shut that down. But to those who might flee California, my question would be this, where are you going to go? The very freedom that you possess to go to another state is possessed by everybody else who lives in this nation. And just as you might go to another state, there are others who would go to that same state whose sole agenda in life is to shake an angry fist against God. North Carolina, when we first moved there, was a fairly conservative state. It's been shifting and shifting and shifting. A lot of cities 
and states are transforming from what we might call red to purple to blue. Elon Musk is arranging and organizing a a mission to Mars. I guess we could try to go to Mars. The only problem is, is that unless you plan on colonizing Mars with angels, you're going to have the same problem eventually. When we go to Scripture and consider the counsel that is given concerning this matter of living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we're given really very different counsel. In fact, the very book that we've been studying brings us to a very important contemplation. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, says that the days are evil. The days, he says, are evil. And so what does he tell the church at Ephesus? Flee Ephesus and go to a more conservative province in Rome? Or flee Rome, go to another empire? In fact, the days were so evil, he said, that it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. The days were evil at the writing of, of at the time of the writing of the epistle to the Ephesians, indeed. But what Paul says to the church at Ephesus is there is, is this. He says, in view of the fact that the days are evil, he says, make the most of your time. And he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Blepete acrobos. Watch your step. Every step that you take, watch it. Because there's darkness on the left and there's darkness on the right. There's darkness all around you. And you're called to walk in a narrow pathway. So watch your step. And he says, walk with wisdom. You know, when you trace the word walk in the book of Ephesus, in the epistle to the Ephesians, you find that it takes you back to this moment in which Paul talks about the walk to which we have been called. And this is actually, this brings us to the very text that we have been studying. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to get to verse 10 where he says, talking about the very salvation to which we have been called. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, what? That we should walk in them. And that's an important moment in which he uses the word walk because how did he use the word walk prior to that? Well, he spoke of our walk the course of our life, in other words, at the beginning of the chapter when he said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So think of the big picture here. Paul's saying this is the way you walked beforehand. You walked according to the ways of darkness, of wickedness, and you walked in conformity with the evil of this world. 
But now you've been saved by grace, and you're now to walk in the very works that God prepared beforehand for you to live and to achieve. God has given us a new walk. And that's how we're to combat the evil of this world. We're to walk with wisdom. We're to walk watching our step, step after step after step, understanding and remembering that the days are evil. And brethren, this is how we appear as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. By the way, that's our calling. Because no matter where you go, you're going to have to face the evil of this world. It's just a question of the degree of the evil. But that's our privilege, is to be lights in the midst of this world. And brethren, we've been thinking about, we've been studying, as we've been going through Ephesians 2, we've been examining how it is that God is making us lights in the midst of this darkness. And we began with this examination of the manner in which God bestowed upon us his mercy and his love and his grace. And so last time we focused primarily on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Having described the reality of our depravity, he says, But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, there you have mercy and love, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then he introduces grace. By grace you have been saved. Mercy, love, grace. This is what we've been looking at. This is what we've been studying together. And all of this we've been studying in order to examine the, the wonder and the, the, the really the, the the remarkable nature of the very name of the church that, that we possess. We possess the name Sovereign Grace Bible Church. It's a great name, and we get to tell people about God's sovereign grace and the grace that he has bestowed upon us in our lives. And so that's why we're examining this matter of grace. So last time... Last Lord's Day, we began with an examination of the grace of salvation, the grace of our salvation, which indeed stands upon the foundation of God's mercy. We talked about how it is that God, being rich in mercy, extended his mercy and love towards us. We talked about this idea of him being plusios, uh, being abounding and, and filled with the riches of mercy. And we talked about how it is that God doesn't just possess mercy like he possesses the possessions of this world in this universe, which he made, but he possesses mercy as a part of his own attributes. It's who he is, you see. And it's out of that abundance of mercy that he extended such kindness towards us. We then talked about the grace of salvation and how it reveals the nature of God's love. And, and this is key because the order of what he presents in these verses is crucial. He talks about mercy and then he talks about love. And this helps us to understand that the love with which God loved us is an outflow of his mercy. So in other words, God out of his pity towards us, out of his compassion towards us, set his love upon us. It's not because of some merit. It's not because of some, something that distinguished us towards him in a favorable way, such that he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to extend my love to you because you deserve it. No. 
The very opposite is the case. We were children of wrath, remember? That's what we were told. We deserve the very opposite. So here we talked about how it is that our understanding of love, the definition of love from Scripture is crucial. I mentioned last time how it is that many evangelicals have corrupted the idea of the teaching of love. And this is why we have such a great privilege to talk to people about what love really does mean. There's a lot of confusion about what love is. And that's why I gave you that track last time, the rainbow track, because it helps us to understand and realize that God in his mercy and patience is withholding and restraining the just judgment that mankind otherwise deserves. And it is within this period of gospel mercy that we get to tell people about the grace of salvation. What a privilege that is. And then finally, and we really didn't get into this last time, but I mentioned the fact that, as is mentioned in the text of Scripture, that God's grace of salvation nullifies all boasting. Well, this is kind of self-evident by the time you get to these verses, verses 8 and 9. By grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. If it's of works, then we have a reason to brag and boast. But it's not from our works that we're saved. And therefore, there should be no boasting in self. The only boasting that we do is boasting in Christ and in his finished work on the cross. Brethren, this is such a foundational concept. I, I remember when I was a baby Christian, I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. And I used to play racquetball all the time, and I would go down to the racquetball court, and there was a, there was a, a booth that you had to go check in at to play a, a, a game of racquetball. And um, there was a young lady who worked the booth there to check you in and let you play and so forth. And I remember just sitting there and uh, talking to her, and I said, do you know Christ? Are you a Christian? And that was a question that just kind of surprised her because she had been thinking about that. She was wondering if she was a Christian. She was raised in a church context, and she proceeded to talk to me about how it is that she, she thought maybe she was saved, but she really wasn't sure if she was saved. And then she proceeded to tell me how it is that five times she walked down the aisle of her church in response to altar calls, rededicated her life five times. Five times she was baptized just to try to seal the deal. It's heartbreaking. She was terrified. She had no idea of her future. She had no concept as to whether or not she was saved. She hoped she was saved. You know, this is what happens when you stray from Scripture and you stray from a careful contemplation of the mercy, the love, and the grace of God. And then you start wandering off into vain imaginations about what we do to save ourselves and what our participation does to secure our salvation. Taking our eyes off the objective assurance that we possess in the scriptures as we look at the finished work of Christ, this is a sure recipe for disaster every time. Jim Zaspel, who served in ministry for, what, over 50 years, I think, before the Lord took him home, I miss him. 
He used to tell me that baby Christians understand that they are saved by God's sovereign grace until bad preachers preach it out of them. Because what does a baby Christian know? What does a a child of God first know when they're saved? What they understand is very simple. God saved me. And they're not looking at what they did. They're looking at what God achieved in redeeming them. And it is that simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ that is then robbed from them when they're taken away from the clear teaching of the word on this very subject. So, brethren, I invite you to join me as we study now the text of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, we're going to look at together, though not exclusively, these two verses, but we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul says, again, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. This morning, what we're going to do is, first of all, consider the mercy, love, and grace of God in our salvation. The mercy, love, and grace of God in our salvation. Why all that? Well, because that's the context of what we've been studying. That's what we learned last time when Paul gave us this beautiful picture and view of the God who saves us and talks about the mercy, love, and grace of God. If we're going to talk about our salvation and the grace of our salvation, we need to think carefully about the God who gave us this grace the grace of our salvation. Secondly, we're going to consider this morning what it is that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 teaches us about what our confession should be. We have, in the contemplation of these verses, a humble confession of salvation. Our confession is a confession of humility. God saved me, not me. This is God's work, not mine. My confidence, my boasting rests in him and not in me. And thirdly and finally, we'll consider how Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 impacts our own lives, our communion with God, and our outreach to the lost. And that will be brief as well. Um, There's so much we could cover in these verses, but we're just going to summarize these matters here this morning. But let's first of all consider how it is that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 teach us about the mercy, love, and grace of God in our salvation. Now, remember the roadmap that we've been going by, the roadmap, the exegetical roadmap that's right in front of us. First of all, verses 1 through 3 talk to us about our own sin, our depravity. In a sense, verses 1 through 3 is a miniaturized version of Romans 1 and 3. We, we, we have this description of what we were and how it is that we were committed to living not for God, but for everything that was opposed to God. Why does Paul do this? Why does he front load all that description of our depravity before getting to the good stuff about our salvation? It's because he wants us to see the context and the reality of God's mercy, love, and grace, which comes then, and this is the second point of our roadmap, 
That brought us then to this beautiful view of God, the very nature of God, where he says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Paul says, before I get to the good stuff, before I talk about what it is that God did to save you, look at the God who saved you. He's merciful and abounding in love, and the love that he set upon you is an outflow of the very mercy that he possesses. Then he describes for us God's saving grace and the very action that God took to redeem us. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, there again, he repeats the prior stipulation of our depravity. God made us alive together with Christ. Then he says, by grace you have been saved, in parentheses, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Three verbs, the primary verbs of this entire section, are contained in verses 5 and 6. And they showcase for us the very work of God in redeeming us. Then we're given the ultimate purpose for which God redeems us. He says in verse 7, In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Finally, we have the summation of God's self-glorifying work of redemption. And we're given both a historic and ongoing picture of what this is. The historic work is, is that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then the ongoing work that God, that he speaks of in verse 10 is this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that helps us to understand that what God achieved in our redemption, that work continues such that we now walk in the newness of life that is established by our Redeemer. In a sense, verses 8 and 9 is an expansion of what he said back in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. He says, contextualizing the preparation of these verbs, uh, the verbs that describe our salvation, he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, to stipulate the subject, God made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. So that when you get to verse 8, notice that he mentions the word grace again, and you, you don't have this in the translations, which is unfortunate. But in verse 8, it's literally in the Greek, it is this, for by the grace you have been saved. Now, why does he say the grace? Because it's what's called an article of previous mention. The word grace was previously mentioned in this section. So that's why you have an article to stipulate that the grace that he's talking about here in verse 8 was already mentioned in verse 5. And that grace that he stipulates in verse 5 was a description of God's merciful love set upon us. So God, out of his mercy and love, set upon the grace of salvation upon us, and now he is summarizing, even making more explicit, what it is that God did when he says, For by the grace you have been saved. 
by the grace you have been saved. In a sense, you have this connective tissue between verse 8 and verse 5, and you don't want to miss it because Paul is helping us to understand the, the full force of what God has done. He has redeemed us by his mercy, love, and grace. You have to keep all of that together in your mind because that's what's being argued. By the grace you have been saved. Now the word grace, and I know you're very familiar with the word grace, the word kadis, simply speaks of an unmerited gift. Etymologically speaking, though, it is related to the word Cairo. So the, the Greek word kadis, grace, is actually etymologically linked to the word Cairo, which speaks of the idea of joy. And the theological dictionary of the New Testament is careful to point out that, therefore, kadis, then connected to that term, speaks of a happy state or the favor or fortune that comes to an individual and the joy and happiness that is the result of that gift. In other words, we have been gifted grace by God, and that is something that brings joy as a result. We're saved people. And saved people are joyful people. By the way, I can't, I can't wait to preach this at some point in time, but I, I mentioned Philippians. But have you ever thought about the fact that Paul commands the Philippians several times? He commands them to be, to be joyful? Several times? Have you ever commanded somebody to be happy? I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing when you think about it, but he's telling people who have been saved by grace, by the grace of God, he's saying, be happy, be joyful. Why? You have every reason in the universe to be happy. That's why. Because you're the children of God. Because you've been forgiven of your sin. Because it's a fruit of the Spirit. That's why he commands us to be joyful. It's kind of self-evident, isn't it? If somebody gave you a wonderful, wonderful gift of great value, are you going to sit there and be solemn and complain about it, be a a grumpy uh, person about it? I, I doubt that. When we receive a very special gift from someone else, our normal response is to be very happy. People who know that they have been redeemed and have been forgiven of their sins are going to be happy people. What a contrast that is to that young lady that I spoke to years ago when I asked her if she was a Christian. And she had nothing but doubt. She had nothing but fear. She had nothing but the sorrow of her own struggle with whether or not her merit was enough before God to get her into heaven. By the way, this is one of the reasons why, and I, I know it's a, it's, I'm a broken record on this, but one of my favorite outreach questions is, if you were to die tonight and you were to appear before Almighty God and he were to ask you the question, why should I let you into my kingdom? That gets to the, the quick and dirty of what they're trusting in. Because you're either going to hear that individual speak of the merit of Christ alone as being the basis for their entering into heaven, or they're going to give you their resume. It's typically one or the other. And if they give you their resume, you know where to go from there. They need the gospel. Their resume is just going to send them to hell. 
We were once walking in darkness. God, out of his mercy, love, and grace, redeemed us and ordained for us as his creations to walk in a manner that honors and glorifies him. That is the summation of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And the children of God who know that they are redeemed by the power of God, they have joy. I mentioned Rob Bell last time, and I I expressed my incredulity then, and I'll repeat it. It's amazing to me that we have evangelicals or people who claim to be evangelicals who are soft towards things like purgatory. It's just something I don't even understand. We had a Reformation, right? I mean, you think back to the Reformation, you think back to what the people were exposed to. The people were engulfed in darkness, the darkness and superstition of Roman Catholicism. They were robbed of the gospel message, and therefore they lived in fear and dread of their souls beneath that religious system that had nothing to do with Scripture. And I know you know the story, but Pope Leo the X employed the services of Albert of Hohenzollern. Please don't ask me to repeat that location. Hohenzollern. Albert sought to fill the coffers of Rome by selling indulgences as he was basically commissioned by the Pope to do so. And as he went about and and set up this system of selling indulgences, the whole point was to earn money to build a um, uh, a cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral. Albert crafted summary instructions which promised absolution to anyone who confessed their sins to a priest who committed their obedience to the Catholic Church, and when they gave money, the money for the indulgence, that secured their forgiveness of sin. Albert also developed a detailed fee schedule that was established for all members of society from royalty all the way down to peasants. And wherever he went, he insisted that he had the Pope's authority to sell these indulgences such that the Pope had the power, as he would claim, to release whatever souls he pleases from further suffering in purgatory. You know what's striking about all that? We, we look back on this and we think, to your, we think to ourselves, this is horrific. But if you lived in the day and if you didn't have the scriptures, and if you really believed that this was your means of salvation, your means of securing forgiveness... You would welcome this. It's striking to me that Philip Schaff in his history of the the church describes the joy with which the people received Johann Tetzel as he went about from city to city to sell indulgences. Schaff says it this way, Tetzel traveled with great pomp and circumstance throughout Germany. He was received like a messenger of heaven. Priests, monks, and magistrates, men and women, old and young, marched in solemn procession with songs, flags, and candles under the ringing bells to meet him and his fellow monks and followed them to the church. 
They were thrilled about this. Why? Because they falsely believed that by paying money, they could secure their souls. And not just their souls, but the souls of those who had already perished and who were suffering in purgatory. And Tetzel would go about with the quip, whenever the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It's demonic. It's remarkable. Brethren, be assured of this. Every faux faux religion, every false religion that ever was crafted by men will always have some sort of a scheme of merit-based redemption and will oftentimes have a, a profit margin as being the ultimate goal. God, on the other hand, who is the despotain, who already owns everything and who is abounding in the riches of mercy, saves and redeems people, not to gain personal possessions from them as if he could. He owns everything already. He does it for his glory. He does it, Ephesians 2.7, to showcase the riches of his grace. What a difference that is. That's an entire world of difference. Our salvation is rooted in the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God. That's it. If it were not for his mercy, his love, and his grace, we would be left in verses 1 through 3, marching to the satanic drumbeat of this fallen world. Our second point, as we consider Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, these verses show us that we have a humble confession as we speak of our salvation. Ours is a humble confession. We're saved people, not by our works, not by our merit, not even by adding some sort of a 5% contribution to the work of Christ. I don't care how small you make your contribution. If you think you're a part of your own salvation, you are corrupting your understanding of what this all means. For Paul says, for by the grace you have been saved. By the grace you have been saved. The fact that he uses the article, the article of previous mention, as I already said, that brings us back to verses 5 and 6 where he first mentions grace. And it's in that context that he gives us the three primary verbs that describe our salvation. The first verb that he gives in verse 5 is key. He says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, there's no verb yet. The verb comes when he says that he, God, made us alive together with Christ. Sune zoa poesin. Made alive together. We were made alive together with Christ. Brethren, this is our principal confession. We now have life because of our risen Lord. We also confess that by virtue of the fact that when we say that he's the one who gave us life, that's also an implicit admission of the fact that we once were dead, that we once marched about in a state of death, spiritual death. 
and that just as dead men cannot raise themselves from the grave, so it is we were entirely incapable of bringing life to ourselves. When Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him, he says the word can is key because it's the word dunatai from the word dunamis. Remember we were talking about the word dunamis and how this is one of the terms that is employed to speak of the monarchical power and authority of God. God has all power. He is God omnipotent. He has the power to draw us, but he says, Jesus says, no man has power to come to me. That only comes from the God who sovereignly draws us to Christ. Why? Because we're dead. We're dead. And until God brings life to us, we remain in that state. This is the first verb that he gives. God made us alive together with Christ. Then the second verb. And raised us up. Raised us up with him. You know, it's interesting. The Lord doesn't just give us life and then leave us in the tomb or leave us in our state and condition, alive but still encased in a tomb. No, you know, think about it. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, he did it in order that the disciples would believe and understand that he is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. And so he says, what? Lazarus, stay in the tomb? He says, Lazarus, come forth. Walk, come forth. The very one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and who possesses all life commands the dead to come to life and to walk and to walk. The life that we have, brethren, is the very life that is the resurrection life of our Savior. He lives so that we might have life. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, and in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in what? Newness of life. We're new creatures created by God to walk and follow after him. And then he says this, and this is the third verb that he gives us to explain to us the grace of his salvation. He says that he, God, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember this, this harkens back to chapter 1. Just a few verses earlier, remember Paul was talking about how it is that God raised Jesus from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. A clear allusion to and quotation from Psalm 110. But here in verse 6 of chapter 2, we are told that the Lord seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our position. You know, that young lady I spoke to in Okinawa, her position was 
a mess. She believed that her position was stationed on what she was doing. It wasn't secured on the reality of the firm foundation of what Christ did once for all time. But it was on the sinking sand of her obedience and her devotion to God. There's no joy in that. But when you understand that your position is secured such that you were seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, brethren, that is a sure place of certainty and certitude. Of all the gifts ever given to you, there is none greater than what has been given to you in Christ Jesus. Brethren, we are wealthy beyond measure. And we need to think about on a daily basis the riches of what we possess in Christ. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's saying, behold this great God of mercy, love, and grace. This is what he did. This is what he did. Last Lord's Day, we concluded with the the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. And I, I talked about how it is that the verses very richly have us to contemplate the fact that While everything in this world is so beautiful, God made this world. Of course it's beautiful, but the creator himself is far more beautiful. Fair are the meadows, fair still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Only God can bring us out of our despair to great joy in view of the grace of his salvation. Our salvation isn't just some thing that we possess as a mere abstraction. The Lord himself is our portion. Remember we talked about that. Lamentations 3 and verse 24. The Lord is my portion. He's all I own. He's the best of everything that I possess. It's not just the salvation that we possess. He's ours now. He's our God. He's our Savior. And so fittingly, Paul then says, For by the grace you have been saved through faith, And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If you haven't figured out that this is a gift by now, you have just not been paying attention. I'm not talking to you. I know you get it. But if anybody reading this text doesn't really understand salvation is a gift, Paul has been beating it into us again and again and again and again. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of of God. The words, and that... Kai Tauto is a, a neuter pro, pronoun. The, the pronoun Tauto is neuter, and it refers back to an antecedent of some sort. This is oftentimes debated and discussed among commentators. The pronoun is neuter. Faith and grace are feminine, and salvation is masculine. And so you have to ask the question, what does the neuter pronoun refer to? Well, the most recent or the most immediate antecedent is the word faith. And so it is most natural, I think, at least, at least we could say that the faith itself that we possess 
was a gift from God. Charles Hodge says this, The object of the apostle is to show the gratuitous nature of salvation. This is most effectually done by saying, Ye are not only saved by faith in opposition to works, but your very faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. I agree with that, but I would take the view that that it's quite possible, and this is actually a common practice of Paul, not only in Ephesians but in other epistles, that the neuter pronoun is not just referring to the faith, but is referring to the collective idea of everything, the grace, the salvation, and the means of faith. Everything came not from us, but ultimately from God. He does this in Ephesians 1.15, chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 5 and verse 17, chapter 6 and verse 13. There are many other examples where he uses a neuter pronoun to speak of a collective of ideas that are joined together, masculine, feminine, and neuter, that are all packaged together to speak of our salvific identity. And so, I would suggest, when Paul says... And that not of yourselves, he is saying that the salvation, the gifting of his grace, and the operation of faith did not come ex humon out of you, but that it is in fact a gift from God. This is Spurgeon's view, by the way. Spurgeon says the salvation and the faith and the whole gracious work together are not of ourselves. Salvation by grace through faith is not of ourselves in the sense of being the result of our own power. We are bound to view salvation as being as surely a divine act as creation or providence or resurrection. At every point of the process of salvation, this word is appropriate, not of ourselves. From the first desire after it to the full reception of it by faith, it is evermore of the Lord alone and not of ourselves. The man believes, but that belief is only one result among many of the implantation of divine life within the man's soul by God himself. It is God who opens the eyes of our heart. It is God who draws us to him by his sovereign dunamis power. Brethren, these are powerful contemplations. This is more than just theological musing. This is the very substance of our daily life. We need to contemplate these truths. And this then brings me to the concluding point. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, impacts our own lives, our communion with God, and our outreach to the lost. How does this impact our own lives? Well, if you wake up every morning and think to yourself, my salvation is a gift, what's your first contemplation? Especially when you contemplate the riches of the gift giver. That is a contemplation that helps you to understand that you possess all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You've got it all, brethren. You have far more than you could ever possess in this life in terms of the actual and true value of things. The salvation that we have, brethren, surpasses the value of anything in this life. It is a gift of God. It is not the result of works that no one should boast. 
I believe that one of the things that we need to do as Christians is to have a robust theology, not so that we can go around and have head knowledge and talk about God in some sort of a distant abstraction of thought, but we need to have a robust theology so that we would survey the glory of God and to consider the riches of his mercy, his love, and his grace on a daily basis. Because this gives us an anchor for the soul from day to day, minute by minute, second by second. This is a meditation that we all need. Consider the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Think of the word survey. What does a surveyor do? A surveyor analyzes a field in order to consider some architectural construction that's going to be placed on that field. They have to examine and and square off and measure very carefully the entire field in order to evaluate what they're going to build on that field. Every day, we need to approach life with a surveillance, a very careful surveillance of the finished work of our Savior. So listen to these words from the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, what? My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. All my stuff, all my possessions, all my pride is to be mortified. Because when I consider the riches of my God, nothing compares to that. Nothing. Then he says in verse 4, were the whole realm of nature mine. If I could possess everything, in other words, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you could own everything in this world and compare it to the riches of God's love and his mercy, it doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. And in light of what he has given and who he is, we owe him our all in all. And that's our joy, is to give him our lives. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 not only has a very deep impact on our individual lives and contemplation as we survey the riches of our God, but it also impacts, therefore, our communion with God. Every time when you contemplate the fact that your salvation is a gift from God, then what you're doing is, is we just stipulated is you're contemplating the goodness of God, the riches of God. And what happens when you do that is you look beyond the gift itself and you contemplate the goodness of the gift giver. And we're called to love the gift giver. Salvation is a wonderful gift. But it's not a thing that we possess and then just run away with, forgetting the one who gave us this salvation. Our great joy 
is our communion with God, our knowing God, and knowing that he is present with us, and knowing that the love with which he loved us is a love that we cannot measure. It is indeed unfathomable, incomprehensible. And so again, when I survey the wondrous cross, verse 3 says this, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or or thorns compose so rich a crown? This is what our Savior did for us. As we contemplate our salvation, our love for him, our adoration of him, our appreciation of his love will only increase And finally, brethren, I believe that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 not only impacts our individual lives, our consideration of God himself, but this entire section should impact the way in which we talk to people. You're saved, why? Because God sovereignly chose to give you this gift of salvation out of his mercy, love, and grace. And what were we doing? Paul says, including himself, as he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, he says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were all in the same sinking boat. You know, before the Lord saved me, and when I talked to Christians, there were some Christians that I talked to where I had this attitude, this thought that they thought that they were better than me. Sometimes people talk like that in a way where they give that false impression. But we need to be careful. When we talk about justice and what is righteous and what is evil, we need to remind people that we too, we too walked in darkness. We're cut out of the same fallen fabric that everyone within the realm of humanity shares. And that's why there's no boasting. What can I say about my salvation? Can't boast. Well, not in me, but I do boast in him. I boast in my Redeemer. And brethren, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be people a people who boast in our God and do so in the, in the spectrum of society itself. And so once again, when I survey the wondrous cross, verse 2 says this, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. By the way, little parenthetical point. The word save really means the word except for. Should I boast? No. Except in one thing, in other words. We boast in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. I'll boast only in him. He's my only hope. This is our privilege This is our joy as people who are saved by his grace. What a scandal it would be if we close the service without singing when I survey the the wondrous cross, I think. Having mentioned it already several times, 
Hymn number 185. One eighty five, let's stand together when I survey the wondrous cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of Father, in the singing of this hymn, we are reminded of the privilege that we have not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we do so with joy. May we do so with great exuberance, knowing and understanding that we have a perfect and righteous Redeemer, that his work is a finished work, and that our assurance is established in him. Father, the riches of what we have considered here this morning, I pray that they would be in all of our hearts, that they would transform us individually in our worship of you and in our outreach to the lost. Grant us grace, Lord, to grow in the riches of your word to the end that we would be more and more like your son. We pray and petition all these things in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think,
according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day, brethren.